I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 4. We'll be reading together verses 9 through 12. If you were with us last week, you recall that Paul has begun to think about the way that the Old Testament proves that the gospel is all of grace, all through faith, all in Jesus Christ. And he has just quoted from Psalm 32, in which David declares the blessedness of those whose sins are forgiven and covered against the man the Lord does not count his sin. And so now Paul begins responding to that glorious truth with a question. Hear God's word, Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, apart from your Holy Spirit, we are powerless to understand your word. We are unable to apply it in our lives, unable to bear any fruit from it. So, Lord, would you come now and would you give to us grace by your Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ that we might understand, that we might live according to this glorious truth. Lord, teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. If it was a snake, it would have bit you. I don't know if you know this phrase, if you use it in your home. We certainly used it in our home growing up, and it was usually directed to me. Uh, And it it was usually said to me after my mom had sent me off to the pantry or to the cabinet to find something. And I would look and look, and and I couldn't find it, right? But there it was, right right in front of me, right in my face, front and center. If it was a snake, it would have bit you, Caleb. Now, I don't know if I've become a better finder. You can ask Elizabeth after the service. But this saying came to my mind as I prepared for the sermon this week because the Jews of Paul's day, uh, some of whom are amongst the church here in Rome to whom Paul is writing, uh, the Jews of Paul's day, they themselves had failed to see and failed to grasp and, and failed to draw the proper conclusion from something that was so plain, so clear, so evident, so apparent in the Word of God on the very pages of the Scripture, the very surface of the text of the book of Genesis. And their failure to, to see and to apprehend and to draw the right conclusion uh, meant that they were not able to accept the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. They were also not able to understand this this ritual of entrance into God's covenant for their day, circumcision, for our day, baptism. But before we notice the snake that was so clearly before them that it it would have bitten them, let's remember where we are in Paul's letter. 
As we said earlier, in chapter 3, Paul has declared this glorious gospel of grace that we are justified, we are right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That the ungodly are justified apart from any works of their own doing. And now in chapter 4, Paul is using the Old Testament to prove that the gospel has always been that. It has always been justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You remember in chapter 1, he already quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2, and now in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, he has shown us that what God says about Abraham in Genesis 15, and what God says through David in Psalm 32, prove that God has always counted, or reckoned, or credited, or imputed righteousness to sinners through faith. Well, now in verse 9, Paul seems to be addressing an objection uh, that he knew would have been raised by what he had already written. And you see the question he raises there at the beginning of verse 9. Is this blessing, the blessing of free justification by grace, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? It's as if Paul knows that people are thinking, well, but Paul, you raise Abraham, but Abraham was The father of the circumcised, the father of the Jews, you know that, Paul. Even if works aren't essential for salvation, but clearly circumcision must be essential for salvation. Yes, 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 faith is vital, Paul, you're right. But you've got to have the sign of initiation into God's covenant, don't you? Why would God have given circumcision if it wasn't essential for salvation? So now Paul, in these verses, is answering that objection, and he reminds his readers of two things. First, he reminds his readers of what circumcision was not, and then secondly, he reminds his readers of what circumcision was. But what Paul teaches us here about circumcision is actually true about all of the sacraments of the covenant of grace. Now, that word sacrament may be an unfamiliar word to you. It's not a biblical word. Right? It's a word, though, that the church has used down through the ages to describe biblical truth. It's like the word trinity. The word trinity is not in the Bible, and yet is a, a word that we use to describe a truth that has been revealed to us in the Bible. And in this case, the case of the word sacrament, that word is describing those divinely instituted rituals that God has ordained in his word for the good and the strengthening of his people, of his church. In the Old Covenant, it was circumcision and Passover. In the New Covenant, it's baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate this morning. And just as it was vital for the Jews and the early Christians of Paul's day to understand circumcision, so it's vital that we, Christians under the New Covenant, understand the sacraments so that we might rightly understand the gospel of free grace and that we might rightly understand why God has given the sacraments to us as a fundamental part of our discipleship in Jesus Christ. So let's think first about what the sacraments are not, and then secondly, what the sacraments are. What are the sacraments not? Well, Paul tells us the answer to that question on the basis of some very basic detective work. Do you like to read detective fiction? Since a kid, I have loved it, right? Encyclopedia Brown, Cam Jansen, The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle, Chesterton, P.D. James. Now, I, mean, I love reading discipleship, uh, discipleship, detective fiction, right? Um, but there is some discipleship in detective fiction, I can tell you that. Uh, in any good detective story, right, you know this, that the order of events matter tremendously. 
Right? The detective wants to piece together and recreate you know, what was the going on in the victim's life leading up to the, you know, his demise, his death. Or if it was a, a crime, what were you doing and when were you doing it? Where were you? When were you throughout the day leading up to this crime? In order to, to figure out who done it, you've got to figure out and sort of map out the timing. The timing matters tremendously. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Except Paul doesn't have to recreate anything. It's right there on the very surface of the text. He's just pointing out what is plainly taught in the pages of the Bible, what the Jews had refused to see or didn't see, what would have bitten them if it had been a snake. This truth, this fact, that Genesis 15 happened before Genesis 17. In fact, it happened 14 years before. Look at verses 9 and 10. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? This blessing, Paul is saying, of of salvation, of justification, of righteousness before God, is it based on whether you're circumcised? And if so, does that mean that circumcision or uncircumcision is something you've got to fix before you can have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before faith would do any good? Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Just look at the chronology of Abraham's life. Genesis 12, if you were to go back and read that chapter, you would see that Paul was 70, Abraham was 75 years old when God called him out of Haran into Canaan. Uh, Genesis uh, 16 tells us that when Ishmael was born to Abraham, Abraham was 86 years old. Right? So from 75 to 86, that's 11 years. Um, now, uh, when uh, chapter 15 comes, when God declares uh, that Abraham is uh, righteous, that chapter 15 happens somewhere in between age 75 and age 86. Let's say 84 or you know, early 85 uh, before uh, Ishmael is born. But when does circumcision come into the story? When does Genesis 17 happen? Well, we read it, didn't we? Abraham was 99 years old. Ishmael was 13 when God gave the sacrament of circumcision. What is Paul saying? He's saying, do the math. Do the math. By ignoring the chronological facts of Abraham's history, you completely botch the theological truth that is being communicated here. In what condition was Abraham when God justified him? Was he justified before or after he was circumcised? Well, the answer that Paul gives is clear. He was justified way before he was circumcised. God hadn't even given circumcision as a covenant sign yet in Genesis 15, which means that Abraham was not justified because of circumcision. Circumcision played no part whatsoever in his justification. It had nothing to do with God justifying Abraham through faith. That's what the sacraments are not, Paul is saying. They are not the source of salvation. They are not the reason why a sinner can stand right in the presence of a holy God. Faith alone is the instrument through which a sinner is saved. But look what Paul goes on to tell us. God justified Abraham before he was circumcised in order to make this truth abundantly clear. Verse 11, he says God's purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised 
so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So you see what Paul is saying. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters indeed, all who take God at his word, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, all who follow in the footsteps of Abraham the way that a marching band would follow in the footsteps of its drum major, regardless of whether you can trace your genealogy back to Abraham biologically, genetically, regardless of whether you have been marked out with this covenant sign of circumcision carved into your flesh, Paul is saying you don't have to be circumcised like a, a biological Jew in order to be justified. You don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Uncircumcised Gentiles who trust in Jesus Christ will be saved, will be children of Abraham just as surely as circumcised Jews who trust in Jesus Christ will be. Abraham's justification was by free grace alone, through faith alone. Circumcision added nothing to his justification. Circumcision, the sacraments, are not the source of salvation. You see, it's not just circumcision that that's a true statement of. We're going to extrapolate out. We're going we're to draw the conclusion that all of the sacraments function in the same way, whether circumcision or Passover in the old or baptism in the Lord's Supper in the new. They are not the source of salvation. Now, to be sure, the Bible clearly teaches us that the sacraments are not optional for God's people. Right? They are commanded by God. They are instituted by Christ. They're a fundamental part of our discipleship. I love the way that our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it as it talks about baptism. It says, it is a great sin to contemn, that is to despise or to disdain or to neglect this ordinance. But then it goes on to say this, and it's also correct when it writes these words, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto the sacraments as that no person can be regenerated or saved without baptism, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. What are they saying? They're saying that baptism, the Lord's Supper, are not ultimately necessary for salvation. Think about it. The thief on the cross, he believed in Jesus. He died on the cross. He was not baptized before he died. The thief on the cross is in heaven, in paradise, this day with Jesus Christ. If you are born again and you believe in Jesus Christ, but for some reason in God's providence, you never have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table, your salvation is not in danger you, you, your salvation is not somehow lessened. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not ultimately necessary for salvation, but neither are they sufficient for salvation. You can be baptized and not be saved. You can come to the Lord's table and eat and drink month after month or week after week if you're in a church that serves communion weekly, and you cannot be saved. Think of in the Old Covenant Many who were circumcised were not truly circumcised. Ishmael and Esau were circumcised physically, but they did not have the spiritual reality to which their circumcision pointed. In the New Covenant, baptism, in Acts chapter 8, we read of a man named Simon Magus who was baptized upon the profession of his faith. 
And yet in that chapter, after he was baptized, Peter says to him, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. You are in the bondage of iniquity. He was still dead in his sins and his trespasses even after being baptized. Paul's going to tell us later on in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who has been circumcised physically has what Paul had referred to in chapter 2, verses 28, the, the, the inward circumcision of the heart. Right? Not everyone who eats and drinks the Lord's table receives the blessing of the body and blood of Christ. Not everyone who has been baptized with the waters of baptism has also been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the reason that this is true is that God has never designed his sacraments to work sort of automatically. The fancy language is ex oper operato, by the working of the works. The Bible does not teach that the sacraments just sort of work automatically. Hey, you get some water on it, boom, you're saved. You eat and drink the Lord's Supper, hey, you've got everything that it symbolizes. No. The external ordinance doesn't matter one bit if there is no true heart change, if there is no faith leading to the fruits of repentance. Do you remember what John the Baptist said to the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Matthew 3 when he saw them coming out to be baptized by him? He says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's, he's calling out their presumption. He's calling out their hypocrisy. And he says, don't presume to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham for our father. We're circumcised. We grew up in the church. We're about to get a holy water sprinkled on us. We get to come to the Lord's table. Don't presume, he says, on these things. God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, he tells them, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And every tree does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you hear what John the Baptist is saying? He's saying what Paul is saying here in Romans 4. The sacraments are not the source of salvation. Don't presume, don't think that just because you've been baptized or just because you come and eat the Lord's Supper that you're saved. The sacraments are not necessary for salvation and the sacraments are not sufficient for salvation. Without faith in Jesus, without the fruits of repentance flowing from that faith, there is no salvation. Sacraments are not the source of salvation. Well, then what are they, you might ask? Perhaps you can feel the tension here. Paul, you've written that sacraments aren't the source of salvation, that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. But if what you're saying is true, then it sounds a whole lot like circumcision really wasn't a divine institution, that it really had no real purpose or religious significance at all. Is that what you're saying, Paul? Well, Paul tells us here in this text, not just what the sacraments aren't, but what they are. And he respond, would respond to that, that charge by saying, no, absolutely, the sacraments are not meaningless. Yes, they're not mere hygienic acts. Circumcision wasn't that. It wasn't some racial identity marker. But look at 4.11. What does Paul say? He says that God gave Abraham circumcision as a sign and as a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul here calls circumcision, and again, by implication, all of the sacraments, signs and seals of the covenant of grace. What does he mean when he calls circumcision a sign and a seal? Well, let's think about that. The sacraments are signs. 
That is, they are physical, tangible, visible pictures that point beyond themselves to invisible spiritual realities. Sacraments bring spiritual truths to mind in a way that we humans, embodied as we are, finite as we are, can more easily understand. Circumcision, the cutting off of the male foreskin as a formal sign of entrance into the covenant community, was called a sign there in Genesis 17 because it signified, it, it, it pictured forth several things. Cleansing, consecration, and the coming Redeemer. Think about these three things with me. The circumcision pictured forth, it signified cleansing. It reminded God's people that they were sinners. They were sinners who needed to be cleansed and forgiven, needed to have a righteousness that would cover them from the wrath of a holy God. It reminded them that that cleansing came through the shedding of blood and that God was the one who provided forgiveness, who provided righteousness to all who believe his word of promise. So it's a sign of cleansing. It's also a sign of consecration. That heart circumcision that Paul spoke of in Romans 2, but Paul didn't make that up. Where did he get it from? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 30 and Jeremiah chapter 4. The Old Testament from the very beginning taught that physical circumcision was always supposed to point us forward to heart circumcision, of being set apart from the world to follow the Lord, to have the, 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 the sin of our heart, the pollution of sin cut away that we might wholly belong to the Lord. Physical circumcision always pointed forward to heart circumcision, to consecration to God. But the last way that we see circumcision as a sign is that this, this outward symbol was in the very reproductive organ through which the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the Savior, would come every Day, every morning, Abraham would be reminded, would he not, of the promise of God to give to him a seed, offspring, to give to him a Savior who would forgive his sins through his death on the cross. And you remember when we get to Genesis chapter 22 and God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, that cross is brought before Abraham, in a clear way, the son of Abraham must die. God will provide the lamb. And so every circumcision in the old covenant was an opportunity for the people of God to look forward to the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham, in whom all the nations would be blessed. So in all these ways, circumcision is a sign. It's a picture it was a picture of God's people in the Old Covenant, of the gospel, a picture of what God did for them through faith. But this sign, Paul tells us, was also a seal. Now, what is a seal? We don't use this language very often, uh, but a seal was and is a mark of authentication, of attestation, a mark of verification and validation, a mark of certification and confirmation. Whatever word there you like, whatever word helps you to grasp it, hold on to it. Because all those words really mean the same thing, don't they? In the Old Testament and in days gone by, the seal would have been on a ring, a signet ring. 
And they would have taken, kings would have taken their ring and impressed it into clay or eventually wax. And they would have put their seal onto a, a royal letter, say. And that seal would have guaranteed to the recipient of the letter that this was truly from the king. And the king stood behind the contents of the letter. Now, I don't see any of you wearing signet rings that you're, you know, impressing into wax uh, throughout the week. But you've probably gone to a notary. What does a notary do? Well, a notary impresses his or her seal upon a piece of paper that you have signed in their presence. And what are they doing? They are, they are communicating to the recipient of that piece of paper with your signature that, that it was really you who signed it. That signature is true. That signature is, is, is a, a true representation of the person that you're claiming to be. Right? A notary uses a seal and is a seal to assure and to guarantee and to, to promise to the person receiving your piece of paper that it's accurate, it's true, it's, it, it's a real representation. Or think about what we have to do these days on all of our websites, uh, it seems, where it's not just, you know, enter your username and password, but then you have to do the two-step verification, don't you? They're going to say, hey, we just sent you a code to your, you know, cell phone or to your email. You need to enter that code here, and then we'll let you in. All right, well, what, what is that? It's a seal. You are verifying to the computer that you are who you say that you are, that your username and password really represents you, that you're the person who owns the, the account, right? And so when you put in that little code into the, the, the box, you are sealing to the computer. You are verifying and confirming to the computer that you are who you say that you are. But think about it. With a notary or that two-step password, the notary seal, the little code from your cell phone, they're pointless without the, the thing that they are sealing, the piece of paper, the signature, and the password. And so in the same way, when we think about the sacraments, the sacraments presuppose the existence of the thing that is sealed. And what is sealed in the sacraments? Listen, this is so important. What is sealed in the sacraments? It is the promises of God. The promises of God's word are sealed to us, the people of God. We are the computer, as it were. And God is giving to us that verification code saying, I am faithful and true. I have spoken my word of promise, and my promises will come to pass. He gives us the sacraments to authenticate, to verify, to confirm that his promises are true Think about it. We've already seen it in Genesis 17. God had declared to Abraham that he would be his God, that he would give him a seed and an offspring after him, that he would give him a land. How is Abraham to know that these things will come to pass? He believes God. It was counted to him for righteousness. But God gave him circumcision to be a visible word, to be a tangible sign and a seal to assure Abraham in his weak faith that his promises are true. The sacraments, circumcision, gave Abraham greater confidence that all that God had promised would come to pass. It assured Abraham that he really was righteous in God's sight. He really was forgiven in God's sight through faith alone, that it was through faith alone that God had cleansed him from his sin. But here's the, the thing that maybe you're thinking about. Maybe you're scratching your head because you know something of the Old Testament, you're saying, wait a minute. If, if Abraham was 
circumcised after he was justified, which we get, we see that in the pages of the text, but everyone who came after Abraham was actually circumcised before they believed the gospel's promises, before they even could believe. So how does that work? What do we do with that reality? What was the point of circumcision for an eight-day-old baby boy? Well, here's the thing. Circumcision as a sign and a seal functioned in exactly the same way, whether for the professing believer or for the child of the believer. What do I mean? Well, for both, it points to and it confirms the truth of God's promise to everyone who receives it. The, the validity of a sacrament as a sealing sign is not contingent upon the exercise of faith, nor is it contingent upon when faith comes into existence. Because the sacrament speaks and confirms the truth. No matter what age you are, no matter what state you are in, the sacrament says in a tangible way, the promises of God are true. If you believe them, you are righteous, you are clean, you are set apart to God. Believe the promises. They are true. They are steadfast. They are sure. And if you don't believe the promises, what does circumcision say? It says you will be cut off. You will face the wages of sin. That is death. You will experience the curse of the covenant. Now, I bring this up about uh, the, the children of Abraham uh, because when baptism replaces circumcision is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, we have to realize that it functions the same way both to believers in Jesus as well as to their children who are baptized and yet have not expressed faith in Jesus. Oftentimes, it seems that arguments that are held up and used to reject infant baptism could just as easily be used to reject infant circumcision. And yet clearly in the Old Testament, God has commanded Abraham to circumcise his infant sons. Why? Because they were members of the covenant community by virtue of being born into his household. And God never in his word has given any indication that children are now outside of the covenant community, that they're somehow put out of the church. God has never told us to stop giving the children the sign of entrance into the covenant community. And so we as Presbyterians believe that we are continued to be obligated to give that sign to our children. Baptism, just like circumcision, is not the source of salvation, but it is a sign and a seal of cleansing from the guilt and the pollution of sin by the blood and the spirit of Jesus, of being set apart to God. It's a, a sign, a seal. It points us to that reality and it promises, it confirms, it, it guarantees that all who believe in Jesus will be cleansed. But baptism's a better sign, isn't it? It's bloodless for one thing because Jesus has already shed his blood. It's not just for males, it's for males and females. It's a better and more clear sign that can be applied anywhere in any culture, in any climate. And it's a sign that is so beautifully picturing the cleanliness of those who trust in Jesus Christ. So whether baptism is received after faith, in the case of, of, of someone like Abraham, a, a professing believer, or before faith, in the case of a covenant child, just like circumcision, baptism is God's guarantee that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. 
It's God's two-step verification for us to our faith, speaking to us, speaking to those who believe that his promises are true, that when you believe in Jesus, you will be righteous. You will be as white as snow. You will be as clean as the cleanest piece of laundry you've ever seen in your life, freed from the penalty of sin, freed from the pollution of sin. A sacrament is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And that's what we're doing even this morning as we come to the Lord's table. It too is a sacrament of the new covenant. It's a sign of what? Of the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a sign of Jesus bearing the wrath of God as our substitute in our place. It points us to his incarnation, the one who became a man in order that he might die. It points us as well to his sacrificial death It points us to our communion with him, that we share in all of his benefits, that every spiritual blessing is found in him. And as we commune with him, as we feed upon him, we grow up into all grace. And it points us as well, doesn't it, to the wedding feast of the Lamb on the last day, when Jesus will come again, and and the the, the little foretaste that we have here will become a reality. Don't you see Jesus has given us this sacrament to grow us up in faith, to assure us, right? It's a sign that is a seal to confirm to us that if you believe in Jesus, though it may not feel like it, your sins truly are forgiven. Though you may struggle with guilt, though you may struggle with doubts and fears, the Lord's table comes and says, I am your sufficiency. I am your all in all. I am all you need. I have done everything for your salvation. Your continued spiritual nourishment and growth is found in me, says Jesus. Now, of course, there is a difference, isn't there, between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is for infant children, we would argue. But the Lord's Supper, Paul tells us clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, is not for the children of believers until they make a profession of faith. Because why? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, to come to the table, you must understand the gospel. You must understand what is going on around the table You must be able to examine yourselves. You must be able to take and to eat, to to grasp it physically and, and mentally. You must be able to come to the table with a believing heart. And when you come in faith, the Lord seals to your faith that the gospel is true. So this text, though it points us to circumcision... Yet I hope that you've seen that that, that here we can imply and infer to all the sacraments these two truths. The sacraments are not the source of salvation, but the sacraments are a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace, representing Jesus and his benefits to believers, authenticating, verifying God's word of promise to all who believe. They're vital to our discipleship as Jesus Christ. What has your week been like? What's it been like for you? Has it been a hard week? Has it been a a struggle of a week? The Lord says, come to the table and have all of your doubts, all of your fears, all of your struggles resolved in the truth of the gospel, resolved in the death of Jesus Christ. Eating and drinking isn't going to save you, but if you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you come And you have the promises of God confirmed to your soul that the gospel is true. May God enable us to eat and drink with faith. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
Don't come to the table, as Christian will tell you in a bit. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. And if you belong to him, you come and you eat and you drink and you rejoice in what God has done for you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your glorious word of promise that is guaranteed to our weak and our wavering faith when we come to the Lord's table. Oh Lord, we thank you for your sacraments, these holy signs and seals that you have ordained for our growth in grace, for our strengthening. We thank you, Lord, that the sacraments do not save, only faith saves. And yet, Lord, you have ordained that these sacraments are a means of our upbuilding and, and of our being confirmed in the faith. Oh Lord, we thank you for recognizing that we are frail children of dust, condescending to our weakness, condescending to our finitude, coming into our life as a man, and then leaving us with baptism, the Lord's Supper, to remind us of the beauty of your gospel, the goodness of your grace. Oh Lord, come even now, we pray. Prepare us to feast upon Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.